I am uh, so grateful for all of the kindness that's been expressed to me and my family. Uh, wow. Um, I was talking to a pastor friend on the phone this past week, and we were talking about how, yes, we got to be patient with our flock, but we were talking about how patient our flock has been with us. And you guys have been so good to, to me, my family, so gracious to us over the years. You have let us try things and fail. You have followed our lead. You, you've just been, been so good. And also, too, I think the reason why I have lasted 10 years in this role is because God has placed just the right people in my path at just the right time so that my ministry could be sustained. One of those people is here today, and his name is Gary Dolan. Gary, I want you to, to stand up. <laughs> I, 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 oh, man. I go to his house every two weeks. <laughs> and he listens. He makes me laugh. He's got the best sense of humor in the world. Uh, he, he provides insight and wisdom. And his wife, Pam, lets me have this time with him. She's probably actually happy that he does <laughs> spend that time with me. But they are so gracious, and I so appreciate the times I spend in the gazebo. God is good. He knows just what we need right when we need it. And he's speaking through the people of our lives. And he allows paths to intersect and connect these divine appointments that he is orchestrating. And we can be at rest because he doesn't grow tired nor weary. He's always at work for our benefit, for our good, because he is our good, loving father. We've been talking about here in our sermon series, the father's world. This upside-down kingdom that Jesus came onto the scene preaching about and making available to anyone, anywhere, who would come and simply receive him as their king. They would be granted welcome into the Father's world. And the most amazing thing about the Father's world is we live in the Father's world in the midst of this world. We are bi-habitational creatures, us Christians. We have access to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We have access to a power that resurrects. It is the best news a person can hear. It's an opportunity of a lifetime to receive it and to live in it. We've been looking at how the person that's living in the Father's world and in the Father's kingdom will be transformed. Two weeks ago when I preached last, we talked about how they are going to be transformed and how they judge others. 
that they will judge others, but when they do, it will be with a good, godly judging that notices a brother that has gone astray, and then that is motivated by love to see that brother restored. The person living in the kingdom with the kingdom power pulsating through them, they're going to avoid the trap of judgmentalism. That's that ungodly, unrighteous form of judging that just writes people off, that condemns them, that believes they're irredeemable, that they're worthless. It's, it's judgment that lacks compassion and mercy. Aren't you glad that when we were walking in error, Jesus didn't view us as worthless and irredeemable? Aren't you glad that Jesus, when we were walking in error, not just walking in error, but while we were his enemy opposing him, he didn't lack compassion and mercy for us? Here's the question we're going to tackle today. Here it is. How are we to remove this speck in our brother's eye? Because notice Jesus didn't say when we were looking at this two weeks ago not to remove it. We are to remove it. But there's a certain way we got to go about it if we're going to be effective and if we're going to partner with Jesus to actually see the specks in other people's lives removed. Maybe you're here today and your son or daughter is living the prodigal lifestyle. Maybe you're here today and you got a family member that's really doubting the Christian faith. Maybe you're here today and your spouse overworks and is not very present with the family. Maybe you're here today and your spouse wants nothing to do with Jesus. How do you maximize your influence on this person that you are concerned about? How do you go about removing the speck that is in their eye? Pray with me, and we're going to seek to answer that question this morning. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful that we, are, we have this opportunity to live in your kingdom. We're so grateful for your power that transforms and brings dead things out of the ashes back to life. Lord, we want to live in alignment with the ways of your kingdom in the midst of this hurting, broken kingdom that desperately needs you and the salvation that only you can bring. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would so move and work on our hearts that it's impossible for us to walk out of this room the same. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So how are we going to be speck removers? Well, Jesus said in Matthew 7, 5, if we are going to be speck removers, the first thing that we have to do, and I mentioned it two weeks ago, but it's so critical that I have to repeat it again, We must first remove the log from our own eye. Speck removing is such gentle, it's such delicate, 
It's such compassionate and merciful work that the only chance you're going to have at actually being able to do it well is if you are experiencing the compassionate, gentle, merciful work of Jesus in your own life, removing your logs, which you know are many. That is first and foremost. It's the only way we're going to have the right attitude of heart to even start addressing the issues that other people are experiencing. It's the, it's the starting point if we're going to avoid judgmentalism that tries to control other people through condemnation and shame and guilt and fear. Sadly, which many Christians are way too good at doing, unfortunately. So I just want to remind you of that. The second thing you're going to need to be a speck remover, you must be able to use God's truth appropriately. It's critical that we utilize God's word in helpful, beneficial, appropriate ways. Some people believe that since the Bible contains God's truth, they can just throw Bible verses at people whenever, however, and it's okay. Because after all, God's word doesn't return void. Mindlessly and unintelligently just throwing the word out there, speaking the truth to people. There's a reason that the phrase Bible bashing is in our vocabulary. is because Christians, unfortunately, have taken this approach. And what they're doing is they're taking God's precious word that is a light unto our feet, right? A light to our path. And they're using it as a weapon. And what ends up happening often is that the very truth, this precious truth that they use, is actually then used to repel the person from Christ rather than draw the person to Christ. And often, this unintelligent, mindless sharing of God's truth not only repels people from Christ, but also often garners a combative response. I believe, and so do people like Dallas Willard, he was a a philosopher, a Christian theologian, that that's what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 7, 6, when he said, Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet. And turn and tear you in pieces. I want to read you an excerpt from his book, The Divine Conspiracy. It is long, but I think it is worth it. Obviously, I wouldn't be reading it. So I encourage you to tune in here to what he has to say about this verse. The long standard use of this verse is directly opposed to the spirit of Jesus and his teachings. That use suggests that we may have certain wonderful treasures of truth and and of service, perhaps, that we could give to others. Perhaps the treasure is the very gospel itself. 
But there are some who are not worthy of those treasures. We have to watch for such people. Normally, they are thought of as people who will not accept our treasure or would not use it rightly. They are the pigs or the dogs in question. And we are not to waste our good things on these worthless or evil people. So goes the standard teaching and reading of verse 6. But it's hard, he says this, but it's hard to imagine anything more opposed to the spirit of Jesus than this. Indeed, the very coming of Christ, the pearl of God into the world, would be a case of pearls before pigs thus understood. So let us be clear once and for all that Jesus is not suggesting that certain classes of people are to be viewed as pigs or dogs. Nor is he saying that we should not give good things and do good deeds to people who might reject or misuse them. In fact, his teaching is precisely the opposite. We are to be like the Father in in the heavens who is kind to the unthankful and the evil. The problem with pearls for pigs is not that pigs are not worthy. It is not worthiness that is in question here at all, but helpfulness. Pigs cannot digest pearls. They cannot nourish themselves upon them. Likewise, for a dog with the Bible or a crucifix, the dog cannot eat it. The reason these animals will finally turn and rend you when you one day step up to them with another load of Bibles or pearls is that you at least are edible. And what a picture this is of our, our, of our efforts to correct and control others by pouring our good things, often truly precious things, upon them. Things that they nevertheless simply cannot ingest and use to nourish themselves. Often we do not even listen to them. We know without listening. Jesus saw it going around him all the time as we do today. And the outcome is usually exactly the same as with the pig and the dog. Our good intentions make little difference. The needy person will finally become angry and attack us. The point is not the waste of the pearl, but that the person given the pearl pearl is not helped. Frankly, our pearls often are offered with a certain superiority of bearing that keeps us from paying attention to those we are trying to help. We have solutions. That should be enough, shouldn't it? And very quickly, some contempt, impatience, anger, and even condemnation slips into our offer. And the very goodness of our pearl may may make us think that we couldn't possibly have the wrong attitude toward the intended recipient. Would we be offering them such pearls if our heart were not right? Unfortunately, we just might. It has been done. And how we honestly feel when our pearl is left there on the ground to be walked on by the unenthusiastic recipient will be a pretty good sign of where our heart was in the first place. What we are actually doing with our proper condemnations and our wonderful solutions, more often than not, is taking others out of their own responsibility and out of God's hands and trying to bring them under our control. This was never meant to be, and usually we ourselves do not consciously intend it. We are perhaps filled with anxiety about the ones we care for, but Just as we saw earlier with swearing or making oaths, we are always to respect other people as spiritual beings who are responsible before God alone for the course they choose to take of their own free will. 
God has paid an awful price to arrange for human self-determination. He obviously places great value on it. It is, after all, the only way he can get the kind of personal beings he desires for his eternal purposes. And just as we are not to try to manipulate others with impressive language of any kind, so we are not to harass them into rightness and goodness with our condemnings and our pearls or holy things. I've experienced the mishandling of God's truth. I remember, it's funny because my family members are here, some of my family members are here today, and they may remember this, but I remember it was probably 20 years ago, it was at my grandma's house, who's here today, a conversation uh, came about, and the question was this, are people born gay, or is it something that they choose? That was the topic of conversation at our family gathering. And I remember my aunt, uh, who my guess is probably an atheist, and my uncle, who is a Christian, just going at it. And my uncle was sharing a lot of biblical truth, but my aunt wasn't receiving it, nor was he listening to her comments and her opinions. And so what ended up happening is the conversation just continued to escalate, right? And my aunt became more combative. My aunt was not ready to hear because she, has n- she had not been listened to. And when truth was shared, it was shared in an argumentative, prideful, superior sort of way. My uncle was trying to give a starving dog pearls to eat. And just as the dog would find those unsatisfying and unhelpful in terms of its hunger and then just trample them under the dirt, that's exactly what my aunt was doing to my uncle. Trampling what he was saying under the dirt and attacking him, looking to devour him as a result. I have also used the truth in unhelpful ways myself. I can think back uh, when I was having a conversation with my brother, Ryan, and he was asking some really good questions about the Christian faith, and I believe he was having doubts, and me being concerned, oh my goodness, he might reject the Christian faith. I basically came at, at him with, how could you think this? Don't you just see that the Christian worldview just makes sense the most of anything else of what we see in the world? Don't you know that if you reject this way of living, you're going to encounter a lot of pain in your life? Of course, what I was saying was probably true, but it was extremely unhelpful. My brother didn't need pearls of truth. He needed me to listen to him, to acknowledge his questions, his doubts, his uncertainty, to give him empathy for how disorienting that can be, to respond to him in a a non-controlling fashion and way. Now, thankfully, God has made up for my unintelligent response, and my brother, many of you know, is a pastor and is solid in his faith, but how often this happens. And the point is, not only if we're going to remove the speck from other people's eyes, 
not only do we need to be working on the logs in our own life and experiencing Jesus' grace for that, we need to handle God's precious word in a helpful, useful way for the person that does have a speck in their eye. And this leads us to the third and final point, and it's the, it is so important. It is this, because we can get so paralyzed about making a mistake, right, and trying to remove the speck in a person's eye. We can be so paralyzed by fear that we're going to say the wrong thing or mishandle the word of truth and misutilize it in the life of another person that we just don't do anything. And so this point we need, we must utilize prayer in this. Do you need wisdom of how to approach that person that's gone off the the good path? Do you need wisdom what to say, when to say it, how to say it? Do you need wisdom of how to speak the truth in love? Do you need the right heart attitude to approach the person with? Well, here's what Jesus said about that. Matthew 7, 7 through 12. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law in the prophets. If we are going to have the greatest possible influence on the people that God has placed in our lives, we're going to have that influence through prayer. Because influence is the best we can do, right? We need to be reminded of the fact that we can't control anybody. We can't control the people we're concerned about. At best, we can influence them. And actually, I often think that our desire to control them is a form of pride. Like we could, if they would just listen to us, then we could create their salvation for them. Right? And our lack of Willingness to abandon the outcome to God is our desire, our prideful desire to want to be in control. Here's how prayer maximizes your influence on the people that you're concerned about. First of all, prayer is the best way of learning exactly what your interaction with them needs to be. God is the one in whom all knowledge and wisdom and understanding is found. And so if we are going to interact with people that have specks in their eyes in intelligent ways, we have to be people continually going before the throne of God, seeking the wisdom from above so that we know how to do it in a way that is actually going to influence the person we are called to. We have to be knocking on God's door Invited in, experiencing fellowship with him, because he sees the hearts of man. He, his judgment is always spot on. 
I believe there's another reason why we must be people of prayer if we're going to maximize our influence. So not only will we know how to best engage with the people God has called us to, prayer unleashes the power of God in people's lives. As important as your intelligent words will be, as important as you sharing God's truth will be, as important as your gentleness will be, nothing is going to have the greatest impact than prayer. Some people are so far gone that only a mighty move of the Spirit will soften their hard heart. There's no word you can say. And prayer unleashes God's power. Do you believe that our prayers really make a difference as to what God does and doesn't do? Do you believe that? That's what the Bible teaches us. That's precisely the point that Jesus is making in our passage. Who did he say receives? The one who asks. This means our choice of whether or not God does certain things is dependent upon whether we ask. Our prayers matter. That's why James, Jesus' brother, said in James 4.2, you do not have because you do not ask. Isn't it amazing that God is so great that he can even allow his intentions to be altered when he deems appropriate when his people pray. Knowing that our prayers can make such a difference should be such motivation for us to pray and to pray for the people we're concerned about. That's precisely the point that Jesus made too when he talked about asking and seeking and knocking in, in Luke 11. He accompanied that with a story. A story about this guy who has a guest that comes to his house at midnight and he has nothing to give to this guest. So he goes to his neighbor to get some bread for his midnight guest and the neighbor begrudgingly gives him the bread so that he can feed his guest. And the whole point is, look, you are the middleman. You are the middleman. You have a brother or sister in need, and you have a God that is unlike the begrudging neighbor who loves to give good gifts, and you are the link. And so through your intercessory prayer for this person you're concerned for, God's power is going to be unleashed in that, to that person's life. And that should give us another great motivation for prayer. We have a good father who only gives the best gifts, who delights in answering our prayers. That should give us so much freedom in our praying. I no longer have to worry about, well, what if I ask God for the wrong thing? Well, he'll say no. And that's why a lot of our prayers are, the answer is no. Because what we're praying for is not the best. And so we can pray freely, not having to worry that we're going to ask God for the wrong thing. God is a good father who only gives good and perfect gifts. And so I encourage you to pray 
for the people you're concerned about. Diligently, fervently, ask, seek, knock. And you can rest assured that God it will do everything possible except for overriding that person's free will to draw that person to himself because God is a God as 2 Timothy tells us, that wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Don't grow weary in praying. This morning, we get to remember Jesus' amazing sacrifice for us, his amazing mercy towards us, that should put us in such a compassionate gentle position to remove the people's specks that they have. And I think that's why he wanted us to remember what he did for us so that the greatest logs in our life could be removed.